Hello and welcome to the Go Gamecocks podcast presented by the State Newspaper. I am your host Greg Hadley and we are here to give you a quick informative look into the state of University of South Carolina sports with the biggest news of this weekend obviously being South Carolina football's 38-3 loss to Clemson. Joining me as he often does is sports reporter Ben Briner. Ben, we witnessed... Uh, let's call it a one-sided affair this Saturday at Williams-Brice Stadium, and we tried to record this podcast in the immediate aftermath of that, but had some technical difficulties. Probably actually a good thing that we had to wait a day. We'll get back to that later. Hooray for technology breaking. But looking at this game, just for a brief moment, because it, it did happen, I feel like there's some, a little, at least a little bit we can take away from it. It just seemed like it was kind of a microcosm of all the problems South Carolina has had this season as a whole. A defense that breaks down on the back end at its worst. An offense that cannot generate any movement. I mean, when you look at this, how bad was it really for South Carolina? I mean, I had a discussion with someone in the press box who was lamenting, I think it was a third and nine run on a triple option play. And it kind of dawned on me when that happened that at this point in the season running some kind of non-traditional run play on third and nine might have been a better choice for South Carolina than actually dropping back and letting Clemson's pass rush feast on a young offensive line. I mean, that kind of said it all to me. Clemson had better dudes, a lot better dudes. They had healthy dudes. South Carolina just didn't have enough pieces on offense. Even healthy, they probably wouldn't have because Clemson's really, really good. And, I mean, that's a South Carolina offense that, even if you adjust for the quality of defenses they played, still finished, I think, outside the top 90 in college football. So, you know, it was kind of the game we expected. Yeah, I think South Carolina entered as 27.5-point underdogs and failed to cover that. There was a brief moment of hope there with the goal line stand to start, and then it quickly went downhill. Yeah, I mean, you can't have passes that are going awry, and something that Will Muschamp said that I thought was actually kind of interesting was that not only was South Carolina really in a disadvantageous position, but they also, in a lot of spots, did themselves no favors. You know, they couldn't bring down Trevor Lawrence on several key runs. They couldn't contain the pocket. They had several plays where defensive backs just, not only they get beat, but they got spun around. Or they had problems here and there in coverage. They had dropped passes on what I think one could have converted a third down and another probably could have had a big gain. Basically, South Carolina had to play really competent football to keep the game more respectable. And in a lot of spots, they just didn't play that competent football. And now we're looking at six wins in a row for Clemson in this series. And just looking at the state of the rivalry overall, our colleague Matt Connolly wrote a column talking about how this game seems to, you know, just have lost a little bit of its heat because of the one-sided nature of it all. And looking at Clemson's recruiting and the way South Carolina seems to be in, let's put it generously, a, a state of unrest with Coach Muschamp and everything going on, it just seems like we could be looking at a full decade of domination for Clemson. I mean, it's entirely possible just because these programs are right now on different levels. And and frankly, Clemson's on a different level than all but about three, maybe four programs in the whole of college football. They're just not at that level at this point. And there's nothing that, you know, they can do about it other than keep going to work, keep recruiting, keep kind of getting after it and hope to build some kind of program. I mean, even the Clemson that South Carolina, when it had good teams, was beating, 
is really a long way off from this Clemson. That Clemson was competing for and occasionally winning ACC titles. This one is treating the ACC like it's a FCS league. And I only kind of mentioned the fact that this dominance might extend so far because Coach Muschamp has made a big deal of trying to win the state as one of his two main goals. It's plastered on the walls of the operations center and the indoor facility. And it almost seems like he's kind of set himself, maybe not an impossible task, but a very gargantuan one, to say the least. He's definitely put himself in a tricky spot given expectation management. Uh, It was sort of similar to what one of the factors that ended up costing Willie Taggart his job, which was that Taggart downplayed the idea of a rebuild when a rebuild was almost assuredly going to happen. In this case, South Carolina has set two goals, and that goal is to be better than Georgia and be better than Clemson. And those are two really, really difficult goals. Even in in Spurrier's heyday, it was debatable whether they were better than Georgia overall. They were better certain years. They had certain good runs. But it wasn't as if, you know, they were taking that thing all the time. They had an edge on Clemson for five years, and that was pretty notable. But with where those programs are right now, that's basically saying this team wants to chase the biggest goals and sets up a point where someone's going to say, if that's your goal and you're not meeting it all the time, eventually something's going to happen. And to match the longest win streak of either team in the series, Clemson would need to win next year, which in all likelihood they will be, again, probably favored by 20 or more points, you know, in the early projections at least. And then to reach 10, I think that would be through 2023. Their class of 2020 recruiting uh, is number one in the country, and they've already got a good start on 2021 recruiting. So that future looks a little bleak, to be, to be quite frank. But looking at South Carolina as a program, Coach Will Muschamp was pretty forceful in saying that some changes had to be made. Let's take a quick listen to what he said. Uh, I think we got some good players in our program. I'm extremely frustrated for them, uh, but uh, we got we got to make some changes moving forward. I'm not addressing anything as far as that's concerned, so don't ask. Uh, but we need to get better. We had a great crowd today, and I appreciate our, our, the positivity of our fans. I know they're frustrated. We are too. Uh, but uh, we'll, we'll, we, we will be better moving forward and uh, looking forward to getting started recruiting tomorrow. Coach, you, you alluded to the idea that you needed to make some changes, whatever those proved to be. Do you feel like you need to make radical changes with your scheme, or is it more that you think you need to tweak things? No, I think we need to tweak some things, you know, as far as Heath, how we're looking at them. And, and uh, you know, I think that uh, I don't want to expound much past that right now. And Ben, this goes back to why it was maybe better for us to wait a day before recording this podcast, because on Sunday, the news broke that strength and conditioning coach Jeff Doman has been let go, quarterbacks coach Dan Werner is gone, and offensive coordinator Brian McClendon has been essentially demoted, no longer calling plays. He presumably will still be the wide receivers coach. At least for the moment. So let's look at all these big changes going along and break them down one by one. Number one, Jeff Dillman, strength and conditioning coach. That's not one that maybe to a casual observer means all that much, but considering how much head coaches rely on these guys to guide their team through, say, off-season programs and stuff like that, somewhat notable and also notable in the fact that South Carolina struggled with so many injuries these past two years. Jeff Dillman was pretty much Will Muschamp's right-hand man when it came to his football program. He was a guy, there was a lot of trust between them. That was a relationship that was really strong, went all the way back to Florida. And 
Muschamp really through the entirety of the year defended Dillman and said a lot of the season-ending injuries, a lot of the problems they had weren't necessarily the result of, you know, issues with the strength training. You know, you can't strength train a bone to not break when it gets hit in a bad way, that kind of thing. Now, a lot of what he kind of focused on were hamstring issues, and there was uh, an uptick in hamstring issues after that was, you know, pretty well controlled last season. And it's tough to say, you know, is Jeff Dillman necessarily a fall guy? But I think to a degree that kind of is part of it. You had a lot of injuries, back-to-back years, and you're going to end up making a change. It's, you know, a little tough because, you know, he's probably going to have to do his family. It's not a great experience. However, you know, he was one of the, I think he was number 11 in the country in, in salary, at least according to one of the USA Today databases. And with that comes the hope of results. South Carolina's just not been great on the injury front. And after such a bad season, the axe was probably going to fall. And then it did. Yeah, evaluating a position like that from an outside perspective is hard to do just because like you said injuries may not entirely be his fault but there's not a lot of other barometers to go by really hey there like what you hear good news you can help ensure the state continues making journalism you love to read watch and listen to if you're more into sports than news you'd probably like our sports pass membership which gives you access to unlimited sports coverage for just 30 dollars for the first year Subscribe to Sports Pass at thestate.com slash sportspass. You can also read more Gamecocks news by downloading the Go Gamecocks app or by signing up for our newsletter at thestate.com slash newsletters. Thanks for supporting local journalism. Now, back to today's episode. Then, looking at Dan Werner, moving on, he was kind of, I feel like when he was brought in, he was talked about as this, you know, the quarterback whisperer that would help Jake Bentley take that next step in his development. It seems like him moving on is maybe kind of a needed sacrifice, considering that most offensive coordinators are also going to coach QBs, and they wanted to get an offensive coordinator that was different from Brian McClendon. Is that fair to say? I would definitely agree with that. I think it's it's a structural change more than anything else. Simply put, Dan Werner, I think, has done a pretty decent job. He hasn't, you know, necessarily brought instant success because that's a hard barometer to, to kind of match. But you know what? Jake Bentley had one of the more prolific quarterback seasons in program history last year. Ryan Holinsky had a so-so season this year, had some issues with sort of uh, efficiency. But you know what? He didn't throw the ball to the other team a lot. He didn't have too many back-breaking plays, and he was doing it on bum knee. Dan Warner seems mostly fine. Brought in Ryan Holinsky, who was a good recruit, brought in Luke Doty, or at least got the commitment of Luke Doty. We'll see how that ends up falling. He did a good job. The problem is that if you're going to change offensive coordinators, you can't again promote from within because coaching just kind of doesn't flow that way. So you're going to have to get an outside hire. A huge proportion of offensive coordinators are quarterback guys, and a really small proportion of them are wide receiver guys. And so it's sort of tough because if you were to want to bring it, if you weren't going to allow for the ability to bring in a quarterback guy, maybe you could find a wide receiver guy, but that might be tough. And a lot of the offensive coordinators who also coach offensive line tend to work with coaches like Dan Mullen or a Lincoln Riley, for example, who are both really actually the offensive coordinators, and that's just a title for the for the line coach. And if you were to get a running back guy, you'd have to get rid of Thomas Brown. Thomas Brown is the main link to Marshawn Lloyd, and he's done you know a pretty good job this season. So it seemed like someone was going to have to leave, and that someone ended up being Werner. The next question is going to be, if and when they hire their next person, who does that guy want to bring in? 
Does he have a receivers coach in mind? Does he want to work with Eric Wolford? Does he want to work with Thomas Brown? Thomas Brown, I don't know, he might be a non-negotiable one, but also one of his good friends, Brian McClendon, just got demoted. And so there's a lot of movement that could probably still be out there. And and heck, Brian McClendon, I, I should specify, Brian McClendon, as of this moment, by all reports, still actually on staff. Well, you bring up Brian McClendon's status, and I want to get to that in a little bit. But also looking at the QB's situation, you mentioned Luke Doty. I think the second highest rated recruit they have in this upcoming class and Ryan Holinsky. It kind of seems like, especially for Holinsky, getting this next QB coach higher right will be pretty important for his development. Otherwise you're looking at, because by all accounts, next year is a prove it year for Muschamp. If they have to move on to a third coach in three years for him, that wouldn't be particularly beneficial for him. Yeah, that would be a problematic situation if he were to end up with, you know, three different quarterback coaches over the course of his career. But, you know, when you have staffs that are in transition and when you have staffs that have to make changes, that to a degree is kind of life. I mean, if you're a college football player who sticks around for five years, chances are in a lot of situations you're going to end up playing for two head coaches and maybe another batch of assistant coaches. There's still a lot of churn there. It wouldn't be ideal, and Lord knows if it happens, it's probably going to fill a bunch of our notebooks with stories of Ryan Holinsky's getting his third quarterback coach. What's that like? However, that's also the kind of thing that just sort of, it happens. It's life in this sport. And, you know, I'm sure at the moment it probably kind of stings a little bit because Warner was really close with the Holinsky family, and they really liked him. But to a degree, that's just kind of coaching these days. All right, getting back to Brian McClendon, because like you said, he has been demoted, not let go. He's still on staff. However, if he were to stay on staff, that would presumably mean you're paying a wide receivers coach over a million dollars. And again, presumably a new offensive coordinator over a million dollars. It just seems like that situation is very tenuous. And like you said, the new offensive coordinator might want to bring in someone different as well. If Brian McClendon wants to stay here and collect all that money, I bet they would take him because, let's face it, he is a strong recruiting rep, even though the receiver recruiting has been sort of so-so of late, and he's just he's a good coach. However, it's exceedingly rare that coaches take a demotion and just stay where they are. Not impossible. There's situations where it happens, and you know certainly if life things were to get in the way, that's possible. But chances are he's going to depart just based on what we know about coaches what we know about this kind of transition people who get demoted don't tend to stay it's just built into it now one thing that's interesting in all that is if you look at the language of the contract if south carolina were to let brian mcclendon go then he would make a million dollars each of the next two years no matter what it would just be south carolina would pay the difference between whatever money he's making at his next job and that million dollar a year salary However, if he's the one who initiates leaving, which at the moment it seems like he is, he technically actually owes them a buyout. I think it's three hundred grand. Now, obviously, a lot of how coaching contracts works is sort of common sense stuff. After South Carolina demotes him, chances are good that if he were to say, I would like to leave, can you not charge me all this money? That sounds like a thing they would probably do, just to be polite. And because if you demote someone, you're probably not looking to hold on to them at a million bucks a year anyway. So uh, that seems like one that before it's all said and done probably falls out that way. But for the moment, all indications are he's he's still on staff right now. And he is a, a well-liked coach, it seems like, both among, like you said, recruits and the current roster. Yeah, he's definitely a guy that players like playing for. We talked to a bunch of players last week. 
and they had basically said they had his back, they supported him, he was sort of their guy. Sidarius Hutcherson went as far to say, you know, that's my OC. So he's definitely liked, but he's also a guy that, you know, before this year was in demand. He had a chance to leave following... Kurt Roper's ouster, and that in part, I think, sort of ended up with how he got the job. And last year, there were reports that he was linked to, I want to say, like, maybe ECU as a head coach, and then Tennessee as an offensive coordinator. And some of that, I think, allowed him to kind of leverage himself into a raise. So he'll have options if he doesn't want to stay in Columbia. But he's also got a rather large paycheck, so he could also just hang out here and sort of maybe force his way into having them push him out. And looking ahead to Monday, there have been reports, not confirmed on our end, that senior quarterback Jake Bentley is going to make an announcement regarding his future. I think the consensus through most of the season was that he was probably going to transfer based off the development of Ryan Holinsky and the arrival of Luke Doty. With Holinsky's struggles throughout the latter half of the year, maybe that kind of fell off a little bit and there was maybe some kind of a counter narrative that he might actually try and stay and win his job back. As you see it, Ben, what do you think is probably his best option? I think that counter narrative is one of the those sort of optimistic fans who, for better or worse, a lot of the time fan bases want everything. They want new guys, but they also want some of the old guys to stay, and they want exactly these old guys to stay, and they want this and that. Jake Bentley has had a very up-and-down relationship with the Gamecocks fan base. He played really well last year. He started this year particularly terribly before getting injured, and if anything, a fresh start is probably the best course of action for him. And I just, I can't imagine a world in which he says, I'm going to come back. I'm going to battle this true freshman who everyone thinks is very talented. And I'm going to try to pry this job back from him. A lot of the time, you know, seniors want to go somewhere where it looks like they can play ball. And there's got to be a large number of college teams that don't have a particularly established backup, have a senior quarterback right now who would welcome him in with open arms and give him a chance at something new. And frankly, next year is going to be a weird kind of a grind with looming questions about the coaching staff through much of the season, a really difficult SEC schedule, and the upside of returning just seems so remote. You know, even if his dad stays, it just seems so remote that it just seems like he'll move on, start somewhere new, get one final chance to impress the NFL. You mentioned his dad, Bobby Bentley, the tight ends coach. That kind of dovetails into my final question. Do you think we're going to see any more changes? Obviously, the offensive coordinator search is going to kind of dominate the conversation for a little while. But do you think when Coach Muschamp's talking about these big changes that we've seen kind of the the last of the outward flow? No. I think we've seen the last of the outward flow when it comes from South Carolina directly moving someone for the sake of moving them. And by that, I mean firing someone because there just needs to be a reset there. What could follow is if the new offensive coordinator wants to bring in some of his guys, that could create some changes. And if some other jobs are looking at people, you might have Bobby Bentley almost left for an offensive coordinator job at Auburn last year. Perhaps someone says it's time to give him that shot, and perhaps with Jake possibly having moved on, he says, okay, let's let's try that out. Beyond him, the defensive staff has a lot of good coaches. Coleman Hutzler had a pretty good year in terms of special teams, and his linebackers were, were decent. Mike Peterson's well-liked and respected. John Scott Jr. had a very good season, though he is in his first year. And Traverius Robinson had a lot of respect from a lot of folks. So 
I kind of could see sort of, this is the end of South Carolina ejecting people for the sake of needing some change. There still could be cases of people leaving, people coming with new coaches, or some coaches just happen to come out on the market. I don't think South Carolina last year was particularly looking to make a change with their running back and tight ends position until it became clear that Thomas Brown was being relieved of his duties after Mark Richt was out at Miami. Once that happened, he becomes available. He comes out here. So I think we could see something depending on if there's some really good fit that sort of falls into place. All right, that is all we have for now. Thanks for following along with us this football season, but don't tune out just yet. We will have more episodes throughout the coming months as football's offseason gets underway, and of course we will continue to cover men's and women's basketball as Frank Martin and Don Staley's squads each compete for NCAA tournament berths. Please remember to rate and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.